Thank you for tuning back into the Institute for Law and Finance podcast series to Dealmakers. In today's episode, Dr. Sebastian Zida and Alexander Rang will be talking about initial public offerings, including a basic understanding of the process, what motivates companies to go public, and the role lawyers have in advising companies for IPOs. Thank you, Sebastian and Alexander, for finding the time to sit down and talk to us about the challenging times companies have when it comes to IPOs in 2023. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here and join this episode on IPOs. My name is Alexander Rang. I'm a capital markets lawyer at Hengler Müller. Joined the firm in 2005, became a partner in 2011, and advising on IPOs, capital increases, capital raises, and also capital market transactions. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for again for being part of the podcast. Let's begin with the obvious question. What is an IPO? An IPO is an initial public offering. So that means that shares are offered for the first time to the public, to third-party investors. That can be either done from the holdings of a shareholder, that is a secondary, or coupled with new shares from capital increase. Great. Knowing what it is now, then what motivates companies to go public? In your experience, which are the most common motives for them? Well, the typical answer for a lawyer, that depends on circumstances. There are some good reasons for a flotation, but I think you can boil it down to two basic motivations. One is the sell-down of stakes in the business now or in the future. So if you list shares, you can sell down later or at the IPO. So that is an exit scenario generating proceeds for the shareholders and also obviously it creates a tradable asset for future sell-downs. And the other motivation is raising additional equity capital to grow the business. And very often that is key for startup companies which need new money just to grow their business. And yeah, that's basically one major rationale for an IPO. But obviously that all comes at a price. Yeah, you open up your company to a high level of transparency. You open up your affairs to the scrutiny of, of outsiders because you show a lot of insight to investors, which you haven't done before. Great. Going public is, of course, a complex procedure that involves several participants. And what interests us the most, of course, is what role does the lawyers have in it? And what are the specific tasks which are done by a junior associate? So maybe somebody who comes fresh from the university. Yeah, you're right. Going public is a very complex process. Many, many work streams, many participants. Let's start with investment banks acting as global coordinators, um, book runners, underwriters. Um, there are also settlement banks involved for the settlement. Very often there are IPO advisors advising the company on the IPO process, on the pricing. You always need auditors who issue comfort letters that are required for the IPO and very often they are joined by another audit firm helping the company with the preparation of the financials because sometimes it can be tricky to go public for a company which didn't report any financials before. Because once you're public, you have to report and then it has to be IFRS and before it may have been the local gap standard. So this is something that they first have to implement and very often that is done with the help of another audit firm and also the help with preparing profit forecasts or personal financials in case you need that. Very often you involve also PR or communication firms helping you with the communication around the IPO, pre-IPO, but also post-IPO, helping to build up um, investor relations and so on. So a lot of communication around the IPO. You need remuneration advisors advising on the 
compensation packages for management. Very often there are business consultants involved helping you with the project management and other tasks. There are market research firms providing market research studies that you can quote in your prospectus. There used to be a financial printer in the old times, layouting the prospectus and printing it literally. Nowadays, this is no longer needed. Sometimes prospectus are still layouted professionally, but more and more this is done by the law firm simply. And obviously you need a supervisory authority approving the prospectus. Uh, I'm Sebastian, you're from Austria. That would be the FMA in Austria. Here in Germany, it's the BaFin. In Luxembourg, it's the CSF. And last but not least, you need legal advisors like us, lawyers advising the issuer or the underwriters. So they're there are many tasks for lawyers, obviously. First of all, there's process management that needs to be conducted by lawyers, especially by the share council. There's uh, the documentation, primarily the prospectus that is drafted by the share council, and also the underwriting agreement that is drafted by the underwriters council. There are marketing materials prepared by bankers and the company that need to be reviewed and commented on so that they're consistent and meet the relevant standards under EU prospectus laws. Lawyers need to conduct legal due diligence. That's also very key. And finally, we do issue a legal opinion and a disclosure letter. Legal opinion basically confirms the due authorization, the contracts being valid and legally binding, that the shares being duly issued and no laws have been violated. The disclosure letter as such basically confirms that we didn't come across anything in the course of our due diligence, which would make the prospectus incorrect. And for all these tasks, young lawyers starting their career at a firm are involved, maybe except for the process management, because that is usually done by senior associates and partners, but they're involved in drafting the documentation drawing up the prospectus, doing due diligence, also attending the roadshow, um, for example, preparing roadshow materials, attending management sessions. That is all done by young lawyers from the start. So we already touched upon the topic of transparency, which leads us then to the question which us lawyers are most important for. Which are the most important legal requirements for going public? Well, the most important legal requirement is publication of a securities prospectus, because without such a prospectus, you're simply not permitted to go public, i.e. to offer your shares to the public. And that prospectus is drawn up in accordance with the EU prospectus law requirements and needs to be approved by the competent authority that is in Austria, the FMA, in Germany, the BaFin, or in Luxembourg, it's the CSF. And further, that prospectus has to meet the standards for a Rule 144A offering if you want to place shares in the United States, which is a private placement, and that is pretty standard nowadays for IPOs. The information that goes into these documents, which means the, the prospectus, is considered with utmost transparency, is something that the company would not meddle with. So what kind of penalties, liabilities are attracted when any information is falsely represented or missing in these documents? Which are the sanctions when something goes wrong with the prospectus? Can you maybe share some thoughts about that? Sure, that's a good question. Actually, it's about reputation. If you draw up a prospectus that should just be right and the information that is needed to understand the company should be included. If it's not the case, then you do have a reputational issue. And that is quite important for a company if, if a company goes public. 
but also talking more about the legal perspective, there could be a prospectus liability which is triggered by an incorrect prospectus, i.e. if there's missing something that is material or information in the prospectus is not correct and that information is material. That can trigger a prospectus liability. And that would then lead to damage claims of investors, which is essentially based on the drop of the share price uh, compared to the final offer price. But the details are very different in the EU member states. But the good thing is, in practice, we don't see many of these cases. In fact, I have not come across a single case in my own career. So that's also a big divergence when you look to the United States. That's right. In the United States, that's more prone to prospectus liability litigation there. That's different. Mm. Another thing which is very important in the IPO process is, I think, the roadshow. And what is interesting maybe to for our listeners is, have roadshows changed over time? And if how? Yeah, you're right. Roadshows, that is one of the main marketing tools for an IPO. And literally, the management is on the road, traveling around the world to present the investment case to potential investors. So that's how it used to be, at least. And then we had the pandemic and things changed. Many of the physical meetings are nowadays replaced by virtual investor meetings and net roadshow presentation on screen. For example, in 2021, I advised on one IPO and we didn't have a single physical meeting. All was done all virtually. Mm -hmm. And we had hundreds of meetings uh, during that process and none of them in presence. And even the transaction parties met for the first time in Frankfurt for the listing event. Oh. And before that, um, there was no physical meeting whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But still worked out so. Yeah, it still worked out. I mean, nowadays, post-pandemic, you do have physical meetings again, but not as many as before. And, and many for simply for efficiency reasons um, are replaced by virtual meetings. You, you don't have to travel around that lot. In order to successfully advise on such a process, capital markets lawyers need to develop certain skills. How would you say is the better way to acquire these skills? Can they begin by professional experience or is it sufficient to attend IPO courses such as we had at the ILF? I think IPO courses is something you should do because you learn a lot about IPOs from a more theoretical angle. But personally, I learned it on the job. When I started at Hangler, I had no idea how to advise on a capital market transaction. Obviously, you can study the do's and don'ts according to prospectus regulations, market abuse regulations, and so on. But then you also need a pretty good grasp of the financials of the company. And this is something you cannot really study at university. Obviously, you could do another degree, but if you're studying law, that may be difficult. And also, you must be very skillful in navigating your client through the legal requirements and even more importantly, the IPO process as such, because as we mentioned already, that's a quite complex process and clients need your help and appreciate if you navigate them through that process. And this is something you have to learn. That is transaction management, basically. And obviously, also, you have to be aware of the market standards for an IPO because they're key for any IPO process. You want to know them by heart because sometimes you want to deviate from these market standards and then you have to know that you deviate from the market standards and uh, have to know whether you can do that or not and whether this is acceptable and in the interest of the client. Great. Thanks for this insight. Another question which may come up is, which different trading venues are available for an IPO and what makes companies decide for a specific trading venue? 
Again, that depends on the circumstances. Um, let's start with the various market segments. In the EU, we have the EU regulated market with the highest standard. And then we also have the market segments that are primarily regulated by the stock exchanges, such as the Euro MTF in Luxembourg or Scale in Frankfurt. For the offering materials that you prepare, these differences are negligible because for an IPO, you always do a public offering. So that means you need a prospectus in order to do that public offering in the EU. And, and always there's a choice of listing locations. There's Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Stockholm, Vienna, and other locations in the EU, quite many to choose from. And also outside the EU, you can look at Zurich or the United States very often. And the key question for you is the valuation at these places. So where is the market liquid? How many peers are traded in that market? Um, how are their multiples? How good is the research coverage? And these are all factors that are relevant for the valuation. So that is very often key for the company. They select a specific location for the listing. But then also you have to be connected to that location. For example, if you want to go to Switzerland, where you do have a very easy listing process, but you're in a Swiss company, you have to have a very good reason to go there. If you're rooted in Frankfurt, then you should list in Frankfurt because that is your base. So there are many, many considerations that lead to the decision where to list the shares. And very often, if, if you look at biotech companies, for example, they go to the US simply for, for the valuation because valuations are significantly higher than in the EU. For other companies, that is not that key because that valuations are not so different, but very often um, the valuation is still the decisive factor. Mm. Very cool. Another thing which comes to my mind is when it comes to this difficult and complex procedure is that in recent years we saw some innovative structures when it comes to going public. Spotify was using a so-called direct listing and in the last years there was a huge hype about specs. What are these structures all about and are they a real alternative to the classical IPO process? Sometimes they are, Sebastian. If you look at the direct listing that Spotify has done, that is essentially a listing without an underwritten offering. So you don't need underwriters. Spotify didn't need any funding. There was no priority involved. They simply had its investor base, very diverse, and a free float that was sufficient for investing. For example, in the EU, in Frankfurt at least, you would require a minimum of 10% free float to list shares. If you don't have that, you cannot do a listing. So you need offer shares to the public. So there are some requirements that need to be met if you want to do a tariff list. And very often these requirements are not met. And also your brand must be already well known in the market, I think. And the investors must understand your business model without being explained in a pre-deal education so for Spotify, it worked well, but I think that is really an exception. And for Spotify, I think they had another consideration. They wanted to avoid the lockup for their shareholders so that their employees and other shareholders could sell down right after the IPO, which was key for Spotify and for many, many companies that is simply not key. Well, turning to SPAC, that's a business combination of a company where they expect to achieve a listing. So the SPAC is already listed has done an IPO before, and then the target company combines with the spec such that the target will be listed, so the combination will be listed. And there was a boom. I mean, many well-known people um, initiated specs, and 
very successfully implemented uh, these bags. And then that came to a sudden stop in April 2021 and pipe investors became less willing to invest and the redemption rates also increased. So that meant you didn't have deal certainty anymore. And then various bags, the despacking came to a sudden stop. And this has not improved since then. Mm. But I think the tool as such will remain. And we won't see a boom soon. Also, the regulation has become more stringent, which is a good thing because they had some problem during that boom with the disclosure. That is no different, but it will become a normal tool again mm. as it was before. The last two years were really calm when it comes to IPOs, with the big exception of Porsche in Germany. There are, of course, multiple reasons for that. How do the overall market conditions influence the number and timing of IPOs? That's a good question, Sebastian. In 2021 was still a fantastic year for IPOs. And then that came to a sudden stop. I mean, there's one obvious reason, that is the war in the Ukraine, but also rising interest levels, high inflation and high volatility in the market. And IPOs are always difficult to implement in a volatile market. And then if you look at interest levels leading to lower valuations, that makes it simply less attractive to an IPO. But most importantly, if you're doing an IPO and go into the marketing and invest all the time and money, but you can be sure to achieve the listing because the market is so volatile and then you can't place the shares at a price you're okay with, then you shy away from IPOs. And this is what we see now. I mean, currently pipeline is really more or less empty. In 2024, I think there must be more IPOs because the pipeline is building up and we will see some exits also from PEs and they need to sell their assets. That will be 2024, 2025. But 2023 still will be a very poor year for, for IPOs. Thanks, Alex, for these interesting insights again. And it leads me to the next question. You advised IONOS, the sole IPO in Germany 2023 so far, and due to multiple crises, challenging market conditions, as we already heard. Can you share some experiences with us? Yeah, you're right. Market conditions were indeed adverse in late 2022 and early 2023. In fact, in early and mid-2022, they were so adverse that no IPO could be pursued at that time. Nevertheless, there was a clear plan for IONOS to be IPO-ready in the near future. So we were prepared in end of 2022. It seemed just right to aim for an IPO in early 2023. And luckily, IONOS was a simply good asset and still is a simply good asset. So the adverse conditions could be managed at that time and the IPO was completed successfully. Well, congrats on that one again. Thank you, Sebastian. In the EU and especially also in Germany, there are some legislative measures on the agenda to make the going public and the being public easier. The EU Commission presented the so-called EU Listing Act and Germany the so-called Zukunftsfinanzierungsgesetz. What are the main topics addressed in it? First of all, it's good that we have these initiatives because it's always good if the legislator wants to do something about the capital markets and wants to improve the situation. The EU Listing Act, I mean, it's basically about simplification of the listing regulation as such. Obviously, if you think about market practice, there is a certain practice to establish a good disclosure. So maybe you cannot simplify as much as the legislator is thinking about because most importantly, you need to disclose all important factors to the investors. 
then SMEs should have easier access to the capital markets. They have come a long way to get there already. There have been improvements and there will be additional improvements for SMEs. And last but not least, multiple vote share structures for SME growth markets will be permitted, but they're restricted to these markets. So we won't see that in the regulated market. If you look at the Zukunftsfinanzierungsgesetz in Germany, um, they introduced German SPACs, which is totally new. Then new also for us, dual-class shares or multiple vote shares. I mean, if you look at the EU Listing Act, that will be restricted to SME growth markets. Maybe the EU could think about that. The Zukunftsfinanzierungsgesetz also tries to facilitate capital increases without subscription rights, just to make it easier to implement these capital increases that has been handled in a very restrictive manner in Germany so far. We introduced electronic shares and the legal framework for crypto assets will be developed further. Also, the communication with the competent authority, that is the BaFin, is to be improved. So in the future, you can speak to BaFin in English. Communication will be a little bit different, more direct. And last but not least, it is the intention to increase the tax benefits for employee participation programs and also other tax measures will be introduced to strengthen the culture in Germany to invest in listed companies. Cool, so there are some good news ahead. To conclude with, I want to ask you a more personal question, but which I think is also very interesting to our dear listeners. You've been a capital markets lawyer since 2004. What were maybe some of your personal highlights or the highlights during that time? Yeah, that's that's a long time. I started my career at the time and it was hip to do CDOs and CDO squared and other structured transactions, which we all believe to be very cool and fancy. As you know, this is all history. We ran into a financial crisis, which was disruptive for certain transaction structures, including CDOs, CDO squared. And thereafter, we saw further crisis. So I'm pretty used to an ever-changing market environment. This can be challenging, but also exciting sometimes. I don't think I can single out one or two highlights, but to me, it's always a highlight if I learn more about a new business model of a company, preparing an IPO, or simply aiming for a capital raise, um, be it a small or a large company. It's just cool to know more about company, the business model, how they work and how they earn their money and to learn more about that. But clearly, each of the transactions I've done so far is always a great team effort. And one of my personal highlights is to see how a team of lawyers can work together, pull together, and just bring the transaction forward and then successfully complete it. Sounds really fascinating. Alex, thank you so much for being part of our podcast and see you soon. Thank you very much, Sebastian, for having me here. Thanks.